So last week, Jamie delivered to us a wonderful, powerful sermon on the sufficiency of the work of Christ and how nothing can add one iota to our justification before God. All our best efforts, whether it be extreme self-denial or the keeping of laws and holy days or ecstatic experiences or following various philosophies or the latest self-help gurus, nothing can add at all to our justification and standing before God, nothing can bring us closer to God except the complete and sufficient work of Christ. All of our hope is in Christ. So verses 13 and 14 from last week's text, the Holy Spirit, through the writing of the Apostle Paul, tells us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, and it is in him that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Christ has accomplished this for us. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to shift his focus to the person of Christ, the beloved son of God, in whom we have this great hope of redemption. It is because of the person of Jesus who Christ is, that we have the confident guarantee of these promises we hope in. And this is where many go astray. And we must be careful not to go astray, because it is in Christ where all our hope lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. So we must not hope in a false Christ who cannot save And we must be careful not to make Christ in our own image. Muslims will tell you that they believe in Jesus. They believe he was a prophet of God born of the Virgin Mary. But they will insist that he was not crucified to pay for the penalty of our sins, nor was he the only begotten son of God. He was merely another prophet and a lesser prophet than Muhammad. Mormons say they believe in Jesus. But they claim he had a beginning, was the firstborn of many spirit children and the brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say they believe in Jesus. But they teach that Jesus is the first creation of God, the highest ranking spirit being or angel, not co-eternal with the Father. They believe Jesus became fully man, but lacking all deity. That he did not raise bodily from the grave, but ascended back to heaven as the created spirit being he was before coming to earth as a man. Every cult and false religion goes wrong by, the, by denying the true person of Christ and the sufficiency of his work to save. And this is not meant to be a polemic against these groups. We must be careful not to look at those people over there. But we must watch ourselves that we don't believe in a false Jesus that we create in our imagination that looks just like us and supports everything that we support. We must look to the Word of God and believe in the true Christ as presented in the Bible. So this morning, we'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And and the consensus among scholars is that verses 15 through 23, because of its literary structure, is likely a hymn. And and many of you have seen how, how powerful music can be as a memory tool. 
especially those of us with children. With our kids, we often listen to catechisms and Bible verses set to music, and it's amazing how easily the girls will remember it when we sing it together. That would have been the purpose here. The early church would have likely sung the Christ hymn in their Lord's Day gatherings and would have helped them to keep in their mind the person of Christ who has saved and redeemed them. And since it is likely the early church would have sung verses 15 through 20 as a congregation, I was thinking, like we did when we were in the book of Psalms, that we would also, uh, 15 through 20, that we would sing as a congregation or read together as a congregation. And then I'll finish reading uh, verses 21 through 23. All right, so God's word says, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the heresy that was threatening the church at Colossae was calling into question the person and work of Christ. So Paul here is making abundantly clear who this Jesus is that we hope in. And this is one of the most profound and majestic descriptions of Christ in the Bible. This one that has delivered us from the domain of darkness and in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins is the preeminent one of the universe. He is before all things. All things hold together in him. All things are through him and for him. Paul says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So God is invisible as he is spirit. So if he is to be known by us, he will be known through his beloved son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Everything that is to be known about God is revealed to us through Jesus, who is God the Son. John 1.18 tells us, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So John is clear that no one has seen God the Father. But God the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. To be in the bosom of the Father is to describe the closeness and love shared between the Son and the Father through all eternity. And when Jesus was gathered with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, John records for us in chapter 14 of his gospel, says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And we know Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, but Adam could never have truthfully said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that he is the eternal God made visible to us. Adam is created by God through the Son in the image of God, while Christ shares all the attributes of God, Adam certainly did not. And a similar verse is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, being Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God is perfectly imaged and made known to us in Christ. And the universe is upheld by the, word, by the powerful word of Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And some have wrongfully argued that this word firstborn means that Christ is a created being. That he is the first being created by God. Much like the heresy that was threatening the church at Colossae that called into question the sufficiency of the person of Christ, this belief that Jesus is less than God and a created person is heresy. This title attributed to Christ as firstborn is not suggesting that he is the first one created, but that he is the one of highest rank over all creation. The use of the word firstborn as highest rank rather than first to come into being, this is not without precedent in the scriptures. In the book of Exodus, the Lord refers to Israel as his firstborn. And then later in Psalm 89, the Lord tells David, He says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this psalm is ultimately referring to Jesus, who is the son of David, who God promised would reign as king forever and would ultimately be the promised seed that would crush the head of that devilish serpent. But the use of firstborn in this passage is obviously referring to the one of highest rank the highest of all the kings of the earth. The firstborn son is the one that perfectly represents his father. He is the heir of all things and is one of highest rank and preeminence over all creation. And while there is a precedent for the firstborn being one of highest rank, we need to look no further than the rest of the passage to explain the meaning to us. Paul goes on to say, "...for by him all things were created." In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This word for should not be overlooked. It informs us that verse 16 is the grounding statement or explanation of verse 15. It's like saying, he is the image of God, the firstborn over all creation for, it's like because, How can Paul say that Christ is the image and firstborn over all creation? Because all things were created through him and for him. Christ is the very purpose of creation. All things were made for him. Christ cannot be the creator of all, as the text says, and also be a part of creation. That is why the New World Translation, which is the Bible of the Jehovah's Witnesses, slip in the word other. It will read for For by him all other things were created. But there's no basis in the Greek for this. 
They, they, add, they add the word in here because they know that Christ cannot be the creator of all things and also be a part of creation. So when reading this verse, one cannot help but call into mind Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here Paul is saying all things were created by, through, and for Christ. And we read in John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. Jesus is the Word of God, and the Word is God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and for Him. And John is very specific that there was absolutely nothing made that was not made without Him. Time, space, and matter all came through Christ. That is how He is the beginning and the firstborn. Because in the beginning, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the universe. The entire cosmos with its trillions of stars and vast galaxies that we cannot even, be, we cannot be, even begin to understand the immensity and size and energy of all that was created by, through, and for Christ. And Paul is very specific that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The entire physical realm was created by Christ. But then also the heavenly realm, all things visible and invisible. These thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are likely referring to spirit beings or angels, whether fallen or otherwise, and possibly demonic forces. Christ is supreme over all creation, including these supposed rulers in the spiritual realm. He is also creator of these spirit beings. I think Paul may be mentioning these specifically because of the heretical teaching confronting the Colossians insisting on the worship of angels. And we see that in the, in the second chapter. But Christ is supreme over all, including these spiritual forces. And verse 17 reads, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And some have suggested a chiastic structure for the hymn of verse 15 through 20. And and. If that is the case, then verse 17 would be the climax of the hymn. And, and Dale has spoken before on chiasms. So basically, an, a chiasm is an expanded form of parallelism. And, and, and the easiest, the, one of the best examples in Scripture to me for parallelism is Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So heavens and sky, more or less synonyms, declare and proclaim synonyms. So you have these parallel statements, and, and, and both of these proclaim the glory of God. So a chiasm is an expanded form of this parallelism, where the beginning and endings are parallel, while they work towards a climactic statement in the middle. So the parallels briefly described would be Christ is supreme and firstborn of creation, and Christ supreme and firstborn over new creation. The main climax to it all found in the center of the hymn is, in verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
As the author of Hebrews puts it, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ being the only begotten son of the father is before all things. He precedes them all because he created them all and has, and has existed for all eternity. And he ranks higher than them all because he is the perfect radiance of the glory of God. He not only created all things, but he sustains all things. It is the word of Christ by which everything has life and by which things continue to exist. The whole cosmos is held together by him. On a grand scale, galaxies and solar systems are held in place by him. The stars remain in place because he holds them there. The earth continues its course around the sun because he directs it. The sun, supposedly being a million times larger than the earth, continues to give its light and energy because it is powered by the true sun. The sun is powered by the sun. Think, think about it. We try our best to harness the power of the sun through solar panels and other means because of its immense energy. We could power the entire world with just a small fraction of the energy that comes from the sun. But it is the sun of God that powers this star at the center of our solar system. It is all held in place by him. This is true on a grand scale, and it is true on a microscopic scale. Molecules hold together because of Christ. Christ did not just create the universe and step away. Every second, all things are sustained by his word. He holds together the physical universe as well as the spiritual realm. And, and, and this is not hyperbole. This is, this is true. Christ is the goal and purpose of the universe, with the climax of history being the cross, which is why he is, as verse 18 says, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul now shifts from creation to redemption, and from Christ as supreme over the cosmos to Christ as supreme head and authority over the church. The church here is not just a local congregation, although it certainly includes local congregations. It's not a particular denomination or sect, but it is referring to the church universal. All believers that have been redeemed by Christ for all time and in the time yet to come. The church here is all of Christ's sheep who have been called by his voice and follow him. And he is the head of the church and the church is referred to as his body. So the church plays an important role in God's redemptive plan. It is the church that heralds the gospel by which we may come to believe and be redeemed. The gift of baptism and the Lord's Supper are a means of grace given to us by God through the church. It is through the church that I was encouraged uh, by Jamie proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ last week. It is through the church that we, that we bear one another's burdens, love one another and serve one another, encourage one another. It is the church, when my dad died right after Thanksgiving, it was the church that, that, that was there for me, that I could lean on, that could help bear that burden of, of, of sadness for me, that brought us meals and, 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 and helped us. There, there is no lone wolf Christianity. We are to worship and serve God congregationally among other members of the body of Christ. And if we forsake the assembling of ourselves with other believers, we are missing out on one of the primary means of grace in our lives. 
Christ is the head of the church. He's His ultimate authority. And the church is sustained by Him. We can all rest confidently that Christ is the head of the church, that He has overcome the world, including all the spiritual and cosmic forces. Continuing in verse 18, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Christ is the beginning of the creation of the universe, and He is the beginning of the new creation. Christ is the beginning in which God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. He is the beginning of all things. He is the firstborn from the dead. This means he, he is the first to rise from the dead, and He is preeminent over the new creation. You may say, well, I thought others had risen from the dead. Did not Lazarus rise from the dead? But these, these are more like resuscitations than real resurrections. Lazarus was dead in the grave for four days. And when he heard the voice of Jesus calling for him to come out of the grave, he did just that. But Lazarus, he died again later. Jesus was raised from the grave, but he defeated death indefinitely. Death no longer has any hold on him. He is raised forever. And he was not only raised spiritually in some way, his body physically rose from the grave. The apostles heralded, heralded this truth found in Psalm 16.10. God would not let your Holy One see corruption. Meaning the Messiah was promised that he's not going to rot in the grave. Because God raised up his physical body and he was seen and, and touched by the apostles. He shared meals with them after his resurrection. And he was seen by over 500 at once after his resurrection. And many of the apostles suffered greatly and were put to death because of the preaching of the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. Moving along to verse 19, we read, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we have this word for again. So we know this is the grounding statement for everything that we have read before this statement. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from the dead and preeminent over all things. For, or because, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All these things are true of Christ because Christ is God. There is a similar statement made in chapter 2, verse 9 that says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When Jesus became man, he did, not, he did not cease to be God. He was and is both fully God and fully man. When he was born into this world as a man, he did not become less than God. At my house, our typical bedtime routine is I will lay in bed with Elena and Abigail and we read the Bible before they fall asleep. And a question that Elena regularly will ask me, she said, Daddy, how can Jesus have created the whole world if he weren't even born yet? It's a good question. And then I patiently explained for like the 11th time, Jesus has always existed as God the Son for all eternity. Before anything at all was created, Jesus lived alongside God the Father, and they have loved each other always. Our one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and has existed for eternity. But 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus was born of Mary and he became a man, a real man. Just like I am, he became flesh. And I usually, I, I usually like pinch my, this is flesh. This is, Jesus was real, just like I'm real man. Except he never sinned. He was perfect. He never sinned like I do. And it was because of God's love for us that Jesus became a man in order to save us. So we could love him and be with him. So Jesus has always existed as God, the son, but he has not always existed as man. He only became man about 2,000 years ago. But now he is both God and man forever. And I'm usually thinking, I nailed it this time. She's going to understand this time. She's got it. And I'm usually overly confident that I've explained it so well. And I say, baby, do you understand? And she says, no. No. But she's only six. And, and I'm confident that with the help of the Holy Spirit, she'll eventually understand. But this is amazing and, and mysterious to our human minds. How can the transcendent and eternal God take on human flesh and live along us as a man? People said this during the life of Jesus. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I come down from heaven. But we are told that in this ancient Middle Eastern man from the small, obscure town of Nazareth, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this last section of the Christ hymn is parallel with the first section of the hymn. Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, is the same one who is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Christ is Lord of creation and Lord of new creation. He is the creator of all things, and he is the redeemer of all things. He is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is the reconciler of heaven and earth. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. But because of the fall and rebellion into sin, the world is at disharmony with its creator. The world, according to Genesis 3.17, is cursed because of the sin of man. That, That is why there is natural evil in the world. That's why there's natural disasters that cause so much pain in the world. Storms and earthquakes and calamity, chaos. Because of man's sin and rebellion against his creator, there's sickness and and death and pain and suffering and plagues and viruses. But Christ, through the cross, is making all things new and creation will be reconciled to God. But what, what does Paul mean by things on earth or in heaven? Since this last section, I believe, is parallel to the first section, I think he, at least in part, has in mind the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities mentioned in verse 16. These spirit beings, including angels that have rebelled against God, are what Paul has in mind. Some have believed that this verse is teaching some kind of universalism, teaching that even demonic spirits and Satan will be saved. But we know that this is not true based on the clear teaching of the Bible. We know that eternal hellfire 
was created for the devil and his angels. And Revelation 4.11 says of those who reject the gospel, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So for all who reject the gospel and the lordship of Jesus, whether it be humans or angels, they will be punished with eternal hellfire. There's no indication in Scripture that fallen angels or hostile spiritual forces will be saved. So then what, what, so then what does this mean? I think our answer is found in, in chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 15. The Word of God says there, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with His legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. I think the peace and reconciliation brought about through the cross of Christ is explained in this passage. Christ has triumphed over his enemies. He has triumphed over all accusing and hostile spirits and has utterly shamed them. Through the cross, he has displayed his lordship over them. And he has disarmed their accusations against us. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. But he can no longer accuse us before God because Christ has canceled our debt of sin by nailing it to the cross. So through the work of Christ on the cross, we can be reconciled to God and have our sins forgiven. So how can the holy and just Lord and judge of the universe declare rebellious and treasonous sinners as righteous? It is through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At the cross, Christ, he paid the penalty for all our sins. On the cross, Christ absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve. Because of our sinfulness, we deserve eternal punishment in hell. It is what we deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his only begotten son to be born of a woman. He lived a perfect and pleasing life that always honored the Father. And he suffered and died an agonizing death on the cross so that we could be saved. Reading on in our passage in verses 21 through 22. And you who are who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When we really truly see who Christ is and what we are, it makes the gospel of God's grace so incomprehensibly amazing. God's word says we were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. We were not just neutral towards God, but we were hostile. We were enemies. And rebels, we were evil. If you have not believed on Jesus and confessed him as Lord to save you this morning, this is describing you. Evil and hostile. If you're thinking, well, God knows my heart. He knows I'm truly good deep down. No. The Bible says the heart is deceitful among all things and desperately wicked. 
Our lying, stealing, gossiping, hatred of our brothers, our pride and arrogance will not be overlooked by God. Our sexual sins, adulteries, fornication, same-sex attractions, and lustfulness will not be overlooked by God. You're not special. You don't have a special deal with God somehow. He will not overlook your sins. Your good will not outweigh your bad. In fact, if you believe that, then all of your good is marked by pride and self-righteousness, which God resists. Outside of Christ, we are all desperately wicked, and there is no hope outside of Him. We are wicked and sinful, yet God loves us. When we understand how wicked we are, it is incredible that God would save us. Christ, who created all things, who is before all things, and all things hold together. This great and almighty Son of God who literally powers the sun and holds the entire cosmos together, condescended to become a man in order to save us. The author of Hebrews presents to us God's word that says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And they did. But what did man do to the king of glory? They murdered him. He was beaten and spat upon. He was punched in the face. He was mocked and ridiculed. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him. He was nailed to a cross and he hanged there on that tree so that he could be shamed and die. But he went willingly, of course, out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us. For us that he would come to save us that would put our faith in him. He went willingly to the cross and suffered that treatment to save us. When we understand who Christ is and what we are and the length that he went to save us, we will not question the sufficiency of the person of Christ or the sufficiency of his work to save us. What could we possibly add to our justification? As Jonathan Edwards puts it, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It is Christ alone who saves. It is He alone who is worthy. All our own efforts, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But in Christ we are clothed in His righteousness. It is in Christ that we may be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. And our passage this morning ends with Paul urging Christians in Colossae to stand firm in their faith, to not to waver from their hope in Christ. He said, so those of you that he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul here, he introduces a a conditional clause. He has reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We should not take this warning lightly. We must continue in Christ. But I am confident that Christ does not lose any of his sheep. 
As he says in the Gospel of John, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of, my fa- out of the Father's hand. And Jesus also said, again, in, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He will not lose us. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And, and, and Paul, in the book of Romans, he tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And as the author of Hebrews says, let us look unto Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We can rest confidently in Christ that he will not lose us. If we have been called and justified, we will be glorified. We can rest our heads comfortably tonight, believing confidently that we will wake up in the morning as Christians still trusting in Christ. The truth concerning those who have fallen away and reject Christ is that they never really were in him to begin with. And John says this in his, in his first epistle. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. This passage is a real warning that we should not waver of the hope that we have. Our hope is conditioned upon our perseverance, but I believe Christ will cause us to persevere. But I believe these these warnings are, are, are a means of grace to keep us in Christ. So then hear God's word and be encouraged to continue in Christ, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So in conclusion, Christ Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he holds all things together. He makes the transcendent God known to us, and it is only through him that we could ever know God. When we truly see and understand who Christ is and what we are, it makes the gospel of God's grace so amazing. And he is more than sufficient in his person and his work to save us. We must not fall into the ditch of legalism and trying to be justified by adding to the redeeming work of Jesus at the cross. And and we must beware of the ditch on the other side of, of sinful, selfish pleasure and comfort. So stay on the narrow path and look to Christ alone to save you and keep you. He is worthy. He is the preeminent one over the universe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you, God. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. That we are able to know you. That you have redeemed us through your Son. 
that we may have hope. And without him, we have no hope. I pray that we do not waver from this, but remain stable and steadfast, always looking to Christ and his sufficient person and work. And I, and I ask you that if there are any here that do not know you, that have not placed their faith in you and believed upon you as Lord and Savior, that they would do that. That they would see that they are hopeless outside of you. I pray that you just be with us this week. Help us to remain faithful and, and put all our hope and trust in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.